This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Barbenheimer Special. With us is a pop culture confidential favorite, Ryan McQuaid, executive editor over at Awards Watch, here to discuss and dissect. Ryan, I'm so happy that it's you that's here to talk to me about this. I know. I've got my hat on, uh, <laughs> and I've got my, and it can be either a cowboy hat or it could be uh, an Oppenheimer hat. Pipe yeah. or an. Yeah, a pipe or or a Barbie mink. slide, which yeah, or mink. What do I got here? But no, I'm I'm dressed to the nines apparently for these for quite possibly the biggest film conversation we may ever have. Like it feels like we we've, we've been building to this for quite some oh my time. God. Quickly talking about that. I mean, this whole thing, the double feature enthusiasm. Do you think it will have an impact on box office? You're looking at it already. Barbie and Oppenheimer are going to be, I think, truly case studies that we can talk about. I mean, there's some other films this year. It's been a really fascinating year for the box office, in my opinion, because this is like the the what you could see for the future of cinema. And then it's in the middle of a writer's strike in the middle of an actor's strike. But Barbie and Oppenheimer, they started with low expectations. You're talking about movies that... I think Barbie's opening projection was like 75 to 80 and Oppenheimer's was like 35 to 40. Now the projection is 160 for Barbie and Oppenheimer is like 70, you know, phenomenon post phenomenon. So the idea of like the idea that both of these films could pretty much essentially make back their budgets in the same weekend in which they open and have legs because I've seen the Barbie screenings, at least in my area. And I've been talking back and forth with uh, our awards watch colleagues because they live in North Carolina and they live in New York and San Francisco and LA and all these, in Georgia, all these different places. So people want to go not just to their critic screens. They want to go see it in theaters and getting a ticket is harder I think than getting a Taylor Swift ticket at this point. Yeah, it is you, you because especially for Oppenheimer and 70 millimeter IMAX presentation right now, there are not, at least in my area, we are one of the 19 selected locations in America that have the 70 millimeter IMAX, the way that Christopher Nolan wants everyone to see it. The 11 miles of film, right? Yeah. <laughs> for the next two weeks, there is not a single seat in the middle sections of those theaters. You have to see it either on the side or you have to see it in the first two rows. That says a lot about the word of mouth, building up the anticipation and the power of these two filmmakers that we're talking about today. I really think that the, if it was anybody else other than Greta yeah, Gerwig or Christopher Nolan, I don't think that we would be having the same much uh, anticipation either. No, I, I completely agree. I think it's on the strength of these two, um, how much they're loved, expectations they have on every project that they do. Mm, no, for sure. So in what order did you see them? And was I it the saw, right <laughs> I saw it, I think, in the correct order. I saw Barbie uh, first. I did not see them back to back on the same day. I don't think that... I don't actually think that that's the right thing to do. I know that everybody is, there's the, what, the 200, 400,000 people on Fandango that are buying them as a back-to-back feature, Mm -hmm. right? 
And I don't know if I want that much because I think there's so much to both films and it's not fair to uh, those creatives to then, I think comp- it's it's going to be hard not to compare these two films. But I think for me, I would want to separate those two experiences because they are completely different than one another in all the best ways and some and some not great ways either. But I think that um, I, you know, seeing it the way that I saw it, Barbie the first night and then Oppenheimer the second night, I think that that was the best way to see it in my opinion. Both of these movies, even though they're so different and the genres are so different, they, they need some marinating. Yeah. I mean, you want some time to really sink in. How do I feel about this? Like a meal in between. Like these are, these are two meals within themselves. Yeah. I don't need, I don't need like a three hour, you know, like napped and then go jump into the other one that you really need to process both of them. And I think that, audiences aren't going to expect that because of the fact that I think that they think, and this is not to say anything negative or anything. They think Barbie is going to be this candy coated fun time, which it is, but there's a lot more underneath the surface of that movie and on the surface of that too, that you're having just as much conversation about that film as you, you will about Oppenheimer though. I, but they're completely different conversations. So I just want to warn, we will be spoiler heavy here. So if you're about to go see them or if you don't want to be spoiled, um, we're going to be talking freely here. Come back if uh, once you've seen them or be prepared. (laughs) I want to start uh, with Christopher Nolan's epic Oppenheimer. Of course, everyone knows at this point, it's about the theoretical physicist who played an integral part in the Manhattan Project. For me, this is the culmination of Nolan's film universe, his obsessive characters, his time-themed science, morality, consequences of human actions, these type of things that he has done so much. And the package that he made here and how he brought all this together feels like the tip of the Nolan universe. Where for you did this fit into his universe? I I think you said it best. I mean, he's been building to this much like Oppenheimer's building the bomb. He's been, he has been hinting at this at least for the last four films. You look at the dark Knight rises. There is a literal bomb in that movie. You look at interstellar. That is about the desperacy of humanity and the search for scientific exploration and the power of that. And then you look at Dunkirk, obviously the easy comparison is uh, World War II. That film is the inverse, though, of this, because that movie is really about what the average person can do to be a a citizen within your country, what it means to be a, a patriot for your country, especially at the a time of uh, of of where the the clock is ticking in that film, the three different time spheres. And this movie is the polar opposite of how a country can destroy a man and how your patriotism can then be used against you as a weapon. And it's not even that it's about patriotism. It's just about, uh, I wrote in my review for awards watch, American exceptionalism, uh, power dynamics, 
and um, and how we haven't learned to stop doing that in our history even now. And then you look at Tenet, Tenet's whole kind of idea about nuclear annihilation is at the core of that movie and the and the reason why uh, those characters are on a mission to stop a madman. And so you kind of add all that up and you put it in a pot and then he has this wonderful book that he's using to adapt from American Prometheus. It's the, it is the right time for him to make a movie like this. It's the, it's sometimes though, you know, we see a director and we go, Oh, the obvious choice. Oh, it's so obvious that he's going to make this movie. It's not really a surprise that he's going to make Oppenheimer. And sometimes the obvious choice is the correct choice because of the fact that, I mean, this is a masterpiece. It's I've been thinking about it since I've finished watching it, just like yourself. And I'm kind of in awe of how Nolan has taken his his complaints of being a very cold director and turned that coldness into absolute cynicism and made a vital piece of cinema. Yeah, it's I funny think he's going it, in that direction. I think it, I think so he, well. <laughs> he leans into the tendencies that he gets created. And in, this was know. where it fits. Well, it's also because like, you know, J. Robert Oppenheimer does isn't a cynic. You know, he's very much willing to create this. He's he's the cynicism comes from the creation of the bomb itself. And the more and more you start thinking about, you know, the, the you know, the fact that Nolan has said in multiple interviews that the reason why he was interested wasn't necessarily just about, you know, creating the big giant story of a man was the idea that if they press that button, the atmosphere could explode and we could all die. And there was that possibility and that the movie asks all the right questions at a time in which the country is at its most vulnerable. The world is at its most vulnerable. And weirdly enough, it is exactly the the right kind of movie for him to tell right now. We are extremely vulnerable. We are at our worst now because of the events that happened here. We have not gotten any better. And we have not looked internally at why we are still technically in an arms race. We have never stopped being in an arms race. And he warned about this and no one's listened. And when you warn about stuff, especially back then with McCarthyism and the the powers that be being as strong as they were, you could essentially take a hero and turn them into a villain. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. It is using everything in his arsenal that he has created before to ultimately tell this story. And it is led by an absolutely magnificent performance from Killian Murphy, Robert Downey Jr. I'm sure we will talk about him, yes. Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, this entire cast, half of Hollywood's in this movie. And two that I really want to mention, Benny Safdie and David Krumholtz. Oh. Benny Safdie, who plays Teller, quite a difficult role. And then his fellow Jewish American physicist, Isidore Rabi, played by David Krumholtz, which both of those performances for me were just MVPs of the larger cast. Yeah, I thought their performances were great. 
I thought Josh Hartnett's performance yes, also. was, well, one, I'm just going to say it. Josh Hartnett is a snack and a half. <laughs> he is. And good Lord, when he showed up, even my wife was like, holy hell. Yeah, we were like transported back to the late 90s, 2000s when Josh Hartnett was dominating the scene. But uh, no, I like his approach in the film, too, because he plays um, Tellerman and their colleagues at Berkeley at the time. And the government trusts him because he is not leaning in like Robert is to uh, leftist sort of radical ideas of the time, particularly members of the communist party and through friendships, as well as his uh, relationship with his brother, as well as um, his relationship with Gene played by Florence Pugh in the film. He he's drawn to multiple ideas. He's a, he's a theoretical physicist. So the idea of ideas, right. is what he gravitates towards. And, um, and so that can be, that can be dangerous in a lot of ways because then that leaves you gullible and vulnerable uh, when you're trying to get on a project like this. And so I love that scene between um, Murphy and Hartnett where he basically is begging him to get onto this project because of what it means to him being a Jewish American man and a Jewish American physicist who is trying to stop the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And it's an understanding between the two that the radicalism has to end in order to be a revolutionary in a lot of ways. And I find that dichotomy to be fascinating. And then it leads into um, the conversation and the acceptance of between a really interesting dynamics between Killian Murphy's character and Matt Damon's character in the film, which I thought were I thought were really interesting between the military's ideas. And then the scientific ideas that have been and Matt brought Damon to... is so perfectly cast because they Very are, much so. could not be more different in mm. sensibility. Um, these two, Oppenheimer and, and and Matt Damon's character, who and I have forgotten what his name Groves uh, Groves, right, right. If we're talking about casting and and or how he used characters, I have I wish there would have been more Florence Pugh. Um, not just because she does it so well, but also because this is one of the most fascinating characters around Oppenheimer. Jean Tatlock was a brilliant psychiatrist, a political activist. She struggled with her sexuality. There, She was such an enigma, sort of mirroring the enigma of Oppenheimer himself. And I didn't find it quite enough to just say that she's brilliant there would have been nothing missing there for me to have a little bit more of that character that he could have fleshed that out a tad. I, I, I agree. And it is the, the fault of the film. It is the fault. I think of the American epic. Um, I think of a lot of, when I was watching the film and I was thinking about it after it, it reminds me of a movie that I, I do truly love in Malcolm X. And I love Malcolm X. I think that that is a, a masterpiece from Spike Lee and another central performance talking about a figure that was completely misunderstood in its time and its own culture, destroying uh, it within itself um, in Denzel Washington playing Malcolm X in that film. But I always feel that the, the, the part that's underwritten in that film is, is his wife played by Angela Bassett. And I agree. I think both female characters, though blunt less more than pew. He builds up to something. He built, yes, he gives her an arc. Yeah. She was apparently also very brilliant. And mm-hmm. and there you basically get to see a very unhappy wife. But then you understand that what she sacrifices 
of her own integrity to save him, basically, in that last scene. You're, you sort of get what you wanted with that character anyway. Once that comes, you feel more satisfied than I did with um, the Gene Tatlock character. Yeah, she the Blunt's character feels... I mean, you could say she's the traditional housewife. I don't think that that's the case. I think that she's obviously a kind of a lost soul and in a very and everything, but she was brilliant. No, no, I mean, she was, but she was a very much a free spirit and, but then also lost soul. But then you also see her caged in with the idea of, uh, of, of being a domestic housewife and the idea, you know, we see her you know because usually in these films you see her and she would be making a pie and the dinner be on the table and everything she's not that she's completely miserable and she's she's you can see at least in in the unspoken dialogue between the two of them that there's a lot unsaid they're not very happy but they've lived through a lot of shit to get through this and then when he's having to fight for his security clearance and basically his reputation at the end she's the only one that is telling him you need to get your head out of your ass and realize that you're being used right now. You're being destroyed. And she's the one that has to get him to fight. And then she has that amazing scene, I think, with Jason Clark, who is also fantastic oh, in this. Yes. Um, but back to Florence Pugh real quick. I think that you're absolutely right. And it is the the one character that's completely underwritten. It does not excuse this. I know that no one wrote this in a first person perspective. And that will be the excuse that a lot of people make as to he wrote it in the first person. So this is Oppenheimer, you, you know, his through his mind and everything and the two perspectives of the color versus the black and white and whatnot. That's fine and dandy if you want to say that. But this book that you have that you're adapting from, there are large sections of that book, from my understanding, that are completely locked into this relationship and how integral it was to him. Yeah, you know? I mean, if she was a passionate love of his life, both, you know, passionate yeah. love as well as intellectual love, that's so passionate that he went back when she was in her terrible depressions. And we see that in the film. So yeah. I don't believe that even if it was in first person, he would have seen her. It is underwritten in that sense, because those are the things he would have seen. She has like three scenes and they feel like they're the shortest scenes of the film. It is yeah, a damn waste. Yeah, they're snapshots, yeah. you know, and it feels like, no, she's more than that. And then because then his reaction to when she, you know, when she passes, it's the it is the kind of reaction you have when you have spent as an audience the time understanding that character and what they meant to Oppenheimer and how deeply also too that scene feels and effects on Kitty as well. And what she says, we're like, we're not going to cry about your mistress or your mistakes here. We're going to get up and you're going to continue your work, which is a cold line of dialogue to say. And absolutely the, you know, probably the truth and in, in how she felt at the time. And it, it did linger a lot. And there wasn't, it's a very provocative and interesting uh, shot that he uses in the film to display the affair um, in front of, of Kitty, which I, I thought was a, a bold an Still interesting way of doing Nolan. it, but it's really on the nose, but in a terrific way. How you feel if your husband Horrifying. or your wife is having an affair and you're picturing <laughs> it in your head. The, the passionate scenes are both very well done and very yeah. sort of because new to me for no in the Nolan universe. <laughs> and I, I think that I think that this isn't a, again, this is not just a Christopher Nolan problem. This is a 
this is a problem of which of of the genre and 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 i'm not excusing it i did not excuse it in my review doesn't take away from the overall film and what it is saying and everything but it is a problem that the genre has and and i and i was talking to eric anderson um our our wonderful friend and my editor i was saying that's why i'm so glad that we're seeing a movie like priscilla come out because a movie from Sofia Coppola later this year, because I felt like in something like Elvis, a movie that everybody loved the last same year, problem. the same damn thing happened there. So we're able to then tell their stories. And I want those stories told. And actually I would prefer if it's told from a female perspective um, because, and and I would love to see Kitty's story. I would love to see Jean's story and how tragic, tragic it is um you know and and everything uh, but yeah it is it is definitely the issue of the film it is the probably glaring issue of the film for me other than that there really isn't much more um if he but again i think also too it's not as an excuse like in his you know he doesn't have really an excuse like he does in his original screenplays here because he has a biography and these are real people he can adapt i don't know if it was the the IMAX cameras and also the three hour runtime, you know, maybe there's a longer cut with more stuff. It feels like it because why do you cast an actress like Florence Pugh for only these couple of scenes? You know, so I, I, I would wish that there was more. I do want more because I want to see more of those relationships, especially from these great actors that did have great chemistry together. I want to really get into Killian and to how Nolan has crafted Oppenheimer himself, but let's get it. I want to talk a little bit about how he narratively have put this. I think Heute von Heutema is doing some of his best work, also some of his best face work. I mean, what he does with these characters' faces, um, with but I would like to really call out Jennifer Lane, the editor, yes. because this. For us to understand the complicated narrative that Nolan's putting together, he's jumping between times and trials and psychological modes. There's so many characters, so many political aspects. I think so much is her editing that we feel more than we usually do in Nolan's films in terms of emotionality. What do you think? Yes, I absolutely agree. I think that she... She is an absolute MVP and um, vital. Again, to uh, if I could use that, um, that mo- that word is very much for this movie um, because uh, I think that, in particularly in the third act, the third act when we go to Louis Strauss's point of view, mostly played by Robert Downey Jr. I think that. There's a sequence, and we are in full spoilers, so I can talk about it, where Strauss has felt absolutely betrayed by Robert Oppenheimer. I mean, this is a man who has massive ego and integrity and power already. He's got the ear of the president. He's ahead of this commission um, you know, of atomic energy, where Robert is also a board member and everything. And essentially, when they're talking about the H-bomb, and they're talking about the future of using atomic weaponry in modern warfare Oppenheimer starts becoming like the rest of the scientific community behind the scenes, very, very nervous about it. And there's so many great lines 
of dialogue underneath. You know, it's funny. Everybody always gets on Nolan for uh, one is dialogue two is sound work. They're both perfect here. And you can hear it in this 70 millimeter or just regular IMAX form, however you saw it. And you can hear the lines of, well, we'll see about that. Or we'll see how far you get with that. And, you know, these things that like um, that Downey's character says back to Oppenheimer. And then of course this, Oppenheimer's trial for his security clearance is going on at the same time as Strauss is being um, uh, he's being confirmed for a position in, I think, what is it? Eisenheimer uh, Eisenhower's Mm -hmm. um, administration. And so, and of course we all know in modern times, uh, confirmation hearings can be very, very uh, spicy and Oppenheimer is the key front and center conversation about, uh, you know, how, what did you do to this American hero, you know, <laughs> and uh, Admiral, and it's all from petty, you know, just conversations. And a lot of it's Robert's undoing, you know, of him embarrassing him at this, at this hearing and all this different the stuff. Swedish isotopes. At, exactly. And like talking about like it, like, you know, in a witty way, undermining Lewis in front of everybody in the community. And I love the edit because we see the edit of that scene through Strauss's perspective and he's fine, cool, calm and collected as he's kind of talking to Alden Ehrenreich's character. But when you see it through Oppenheimer's perspective, he's crushed and, and you see Oppenheimer basically tell them did to his, I think his co-counsel was that good enough, you know, to kind of destroy him. And from that moment on, Downey just uses that superstar persona of his to kind of be this slow moving knife into Robert Oppenheimer's back. I just think of the way he's walking towards um, uh, Einstein and Oppenheimer's conversation by the lake, how he's walking him to the car after Dane DeHaan serves him the papers for the inquiry. It's these slow little moves that you see, but they're just cuts you know, and and every little thing, and then there's just this explosion of anger when the trial is not the um, the Senate hearing is not going his way, and it is it is incredible work by Robert Downey Jr. We have just not seen him do this for such a long time, and it's in, it's incredible work. It's incredible talking about Jennifer and the editing. There's some terrific editing in that whole back and forth. Um, what we're understanding about what he's going through is she brings that up. Well, she's forefront. that's being edited and cross cut with Strauss's anger is the interrogation by Jason Clark and the explosion that Oppenheimer kind of has in his own um, in his own hearing as well. And it's cut back and forth. And it is, it is like a dance. It's tense. It's horrifying. I mean, like I was at the edge of my seat more than I was at any point at tenant, you know what I mean? Because it's just like, you're getting thrown all this information and you're, and you're, you're getting infuriated and your heart is breaking at the idea that once again, these are people that we're supposed to trust elected officials or people that are in put in high positions of power here in the United States or just in any country to be, be fair and the idea of the them having the power to play the game that manipulates someone that did such important work to save the world, to save lives, even though he destroyed lives. Yes, I was going to say. You that's... know what I mean? It's it's the it's the double edged sword, 
and he his burden already is having to live with the deaths in Japan. And I don't think a lot of people, when they know about this story, know about the fact that we didn't have to drop these bombs. We did this as a as like an exclamation mark went to the end of the war when you really just needed to just it was going to die out. And there was this whole idea of like, well, what if the Nazis get it, you know, or, you know, or somebody else gets it first. And this whole first thing, you know, like if you're first, you're last kind of, you know, kind of thing. And I think the decision making of the the scene where he's, they're talking about the decision to pick Japan is absolutely just American hypocrisy at its highest. When the when the the secretary is like, well, we're not gonna bomb that one place because I go to vacation there, so we can we can bomb the other two places. I sat there and I went, you gotta be kidding me. But this is a great segue. I have this is my question to you, yeah. Ryan. All right. The way that Nolan crafts Oppenheimer in the beginning is so fascinating. I the fact that he feels like he's brilliant um he likes music and poetry and the fact that he almost poisons his professor you can see what kind of person he is in that which gives you an idea of his morality for me nolan does a better job in the first half of the movie of crafting the moral issues that oppenheimer is dealing with than he does at the end a couple of weeks ago i was listening to kai bird the co-author of american prometheus and he was talking about the scene you were referencing, that he helped pick out the different cities where they were bombed. And he also met with the bombardiers to instruct them of the altitude. And he told them what city would be the best, where massive destruction would be. Um, and I feel that a little bit that that was taken away at the end. And it was more of a story of what happened between him and Strauss. And even though there's some very, very powerful, almost surrealistic scenes of his guilt, the fact that he didn't take those scenes that Kai Bird was talking about, there's something that I feel makes him more naive than he was. What do you think? Am I wrong? Well, one, I would never say you're wrong. Um, like, <laughs> um, the, I realized that it was a kangaroo court. The whole McCarthy-esque and was so unfair, but he never apologized for what he did, but he did try to, to course correct where the world was going in terms of an international nuclear arms race. There's something in the pit of my stomach. I would have wanted a little bit more moral complexity at the last hour as well. I disagree. I think that it's all there. Um, I think that the reason why he's not fighting, I think that the reason why he has to fight, he's sort of gobsmacked and side and sideswiped by Lewis and doesn't see it. And I think that it's because he's playing in a different sandbox at that point. He's not, he's not, he's not in control. And you know, he is, he is a, some people are brilliant in their own fields, but when it comes to then having to be multi brilliant in others, they are not as equipped to handle the political barrage that is American politics. And he's very much in command when he is creating this machine 
And even when it goes, I think that from the moment that test goes off, he knows mm -hmm. it, he knows exactly what he's done. He finally feels the weight of it. Well, I think, I think that, I think that he's trying to save a lot of the, I mean, there's a lot of this in the film about the, the idea of communism and the idea of saving his name and the idea of the legacy that's going to, you know, of the men that are and women that are there, but also then to, you know, I said this in the review, I said, you would think that for a person that is creating this weapon that they would be, he would be celebrating like everybody else, but he's not, he's not celebrating. He knows, and he's asked the question already. Cause then when they have that, that uh, staff kind of meeting about like having a moral conundrum and he, and he says the line, which I think is a brilliant line of like, they're not going to know what this thing is until we use it and we have to use it. And yeah, they're having of, a meeting where they're discussing what you were referencing before that the war is basically over. Yeah. Now to bomb Japan basically starts the Cold War. Yeah. And he's having to, you know, obviously by the scene in which they're picking that out, he's having to do it. He's, he's, there's no, you know, it's, he has to tell them all those, those bits of information, like you mentioned, because that is his job. And also because Groves and everybody know his file, they know that if he's, if he goes another way, he's going to be considered a communist and he's going to be locked up essentially. So he has no choice at this point to do it right. And also to make sure that they understand then, but then the rest of the film is him fighting back to make, especially in those scenes, I think in through Strauss's perspective in black and white that then do cut back and forth to his perspective towards the, in the third act as well, too, of that, uh, the um, atomic energy commission uh, conversation where they're talking about the future and how to use them. And he said from the beginning that this should be a UN coalition that should not be just one world's dominance. And then of course it turns into an arm race and that's kind of out of his hands at that point. And I think that what Nolan then does is I think he, purposefully and perfectly uses you know the the scene in which you're talking about the camera moving in to a close-up of killian murphy's face when they see the devastation that caused in japan when he's understanding that um and it's told mostly that he's gone and said that they have to stop and that there needs to be um, and a lot of it's in the beginning of the film that's about the events that happened and exactly. you know and that's that's kind of the cut back and forth between it as well and he's not the one fighting for his reputation at the strauss confirmation hearings either it's somebody else that does that for him because by that point there's the brilliance of the ending when einstein is talking to him about essentially that his life's work is going to be picked apart and scrutinized and then a generation will go by and they will award him an award. And then there will be this banquet and food will be presented and all these different things. And you will sit there and see some of the people that destroyed your lives come and shake your hand. And it's brilliant. It's, brilliant. it's absolutely brilliant. And I think that for me, watching that third act, at least on the first viewing right now, I felt like him. The audience feels like him the, throughout the entire third act where he's, he is trying to explain his reasoning. He is ex- trying to explain everything that happens posted. And he is getting picked apart left and right by this commission, this kangaroo court that you mentioned. He is not going to win this. 
And at a certain point, any fight that he has left in him is gone. His spirit, anything, it's just dissipated. He is, he, it's, they broke his soul. And by the end of it, I, I don't think I've seen a, a movie like that in a long time take its protagonist and break its soul in a three hour runtime. Like it reminded me a lot, not comparing the two films <laughs> and saying that they're the same in terms of quality, but it reminded me a lot what happens to, um, to T.S. Eliot in, 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 um, in Lawrence of, it, or sorry, T.E. Lawrence and um, in Lawrence it's of Salieri. Arabia. I mean, it's yeah. definitely not the same. It's Sal- I mean, it's, it's a little bit of Mozart too, yeah. right? That like you've drained him of all of his talent and then you know, and that's and you why have you know the the ambition and the power that's basically killing you and everyone else um, yeah. to begin with, and then yeah. you have to live with both the consequences of your ambition and the consequences of what's being done to you. I just thought that the exploration of Oppenheimer's inner self mm. was much more depicted in the first part of the movie that's than fair. it was in the second one. Otherwise, I completely agree that that ending just brought it back yeah just talking about killian the journey he takes (laughs) emotionally with this character is just astounding i know that a good friend of mine and writer over at awards watch uh, sophia seminello said can't believe you know killian murphy gave his lydia tar performance this early in the year um, because it feels so, like that movie, it feels like such an all-encompassing role. And he's on the screen for such a, a large chunk of this movie. There's not, besides maybe some some straw sequences, there, he is in almost every frame, uh, especially, you know, when they're at Los Alamos and you're following him, you know, as the, you know, through everything. I just think that he's worked so he's worked great with Nolan for years in these bit parts and these, I think of his best role is actually in Dunkirk um, where he's playing this conflicted soldier. And you see a lot of that, um, that emotion in that movie because we've done rewatches of Nolan recently and Gerwig's films leading up to this. Like you could see the pain and the scaredness of that character and it's amplified up to a thousand. You know, there's stories of that he's he isolated himself from the rest of the cast because this is a behemoth of a role. And, um, you know, no one. And I have to again say Hoyte von Hoytema, who, of course, is the master of IMAX and, you know, developing new lenses. But what he does with their faces in this one is really something else. It conveys, I think, even more emotion or more language than than the dialogue which is exquisite dialogue, but it's, but like, Oh, I think he might be the best cinematographer right now of, of his generation. And he's right up there. I think with Deacons, when I get excited about somebody using the medium of visual language, but his work on like, Nope. And, and, and everything last year and uh, even on tenant, it's kind of built up to this moment with these IMAX, cameras it, you know it, it in in using this medium in a different way because this is not an action movie this is a drama and i think that you're building to this moment i think that maybe general audiences might get a little disappointed that like oh the bomb test wasn't that 
you know, but I think it's like a crown jewel and like Nolan's. Well, you know, people. I'm worried they'll say we didn't see Hiroshima. Yeah, though, I think that that is absolutely the right choice not to do that choice ever. I'm just saying that that the one that we do see is horrifying and beautiful and scariest thing I've seen. I think that that takes the point of what, you know, seeing, you know, no, I agree with you, but. Um, but I agree that, yeah, there could be like those complaints, but uh, honestly, that's again, not a story for Nolan to tell. Honestly, it's for, um, it's for other filmmakers to be able to tell that perspective. Um, but would, is it fair to say that both Nolan and Hoyt, are really finding a, a way towards emotionality? It's the intimacy, intimacy that, that I, that I think that, that this format, because it's so grand then you're able to see all the emotions on those big giant faces up on that screen and realize that then that becomes this movie becomes a horror movie in a lot of ways. And I think that that's, you know, from just like, I think the grand shots of their face equal, I think the same amount of terror I had when I saw that blood dripped house and Nope, you're, you're feeling this sense of terror and you have to feel that in order to buy into the level of, of, of urgency that this, that this story in this time period is it's, you know, I know a lot of movies have been made about this era and about this subject and there's been shows and movies made about it, but none of them have really ever gotten that urgency and that, that, that ticking time i mean nolan is a master at at one an obsession with time and you know i i I noted it at the beginning of my my review for awards watch we've seen these promotional um you know billboards and all these different things with this clock ticking and we all just assume it is leading towards the release date for this film but it is releasing towards the actual anniversary which is like five days before which is July 15th, which is when the Trinity test was done 68 years ago. And I find that to be such a one that's such a Nolan choice to do, right? To get a studio to, yeah, we're going to have a countdown and no one's going to like actually know what it really is leading to. It's going to be wrong and everybody's going (laughs) to love it. But, um, but of course it's, it's this clock ticking. And then you, you know, I think you, you bring in the sound and then Ludwig Gorenson's score build that tension and like you're talking about with like the the countdown in the film but then it's the 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 sounds the whoosh whoosh you know and 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 everything from when he's in in school and feeling the pressure of the math and everything coming together but then when he finally does have it and it's and it's the lead up then to the the trinity test it's incredible cinema anyone that it doesn't think that this sequence is it's like oh, one of the best the of the year. All of a sudden, oh, I mean, and it cuts the when it cuts breath. Yeah, and you know what? And that's the brilliance of it, isn't it? Is that you know what's going to happen? It's like Titanic. You know the ship's going down, but it's the way it goes down. It's the way it's executed. It's brilliant. You were mentioning Nope because both Bruce Dijon, the production designer, and Hoyte, who did Nope, and has the same as Los Alamos, this Western type, almost like a sect-like environment in Los Alamos, which is the reason this community was able to pull this off morally and ethically and have all their families live there sort of isolated. Yeah, only a a madman could come up with the idea of 
bring your families there because they'll work better and create a, a two-year community or like what is it three two three years and it was two billion dollars you know or something like that it was a very long process to create all this stuff and um i love when he's like introducing you to i think matt damon he's like there's a saloon you know what i mean it's, like know, a set. it's an isolated community yeah. with their own morals ethics and and reasons for for doing this and, and the connections to the outside world are what they decide yeah and somebody says he's the sheriff uh, yes. i think it's strauss that says he's the sheriff running you know Los Alamos and and you feel the the western vibes of it for sure you know what i mean and um and i know that no one has himself very much talked about that this is this is the closest he'll get to making some sort of a western and mm. um i think using hoita with that because coming off a of nope that's very much there's a lot of western tropes that are inside that film as well um and just but those those what also too that the but Western tropes in this ominous way that he did yeah. both in Nope and mm-hmm. in this one, they symbolize something else about America yeah. um, than maybe Sergio Leone's picture of the, of the West. I mean, it's something different. Well, then there was the knights uh, in, you know, in and around uh, Los Alamos uh, too, that the night sh- sequences when they're shooting it before it's built and after it's built, it, it was the photography reminded me a lot of the of the photography and something like there will be blood where it is this, where it's these, these dark, it's these dark, beautiful landscapes um, being used as a backdrop for, you know, a moral conundrum about American exceptionalism and American capitalism and greed killers of the flower moon. Oh, we're going to be, we're we're spoiled exploring this. We're exploring (laughs) this side of America. (laughs) We're going to be very spoiled with cinema this year, folks. I don't don't know what to tell you. So I want to move on to Barbie now, but is there anything uh, last reflections you want to do? I I can only say, please see it on the biggest screen possible. I can only say that. I think that it, it is. It is, it, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, Malcolm X, JFK, The Insider, these three, you know, these large three hour Amadeus, all these three hour epics that have something very vital and important to say. Very timely movie. And I hope that people go ahead and, um, and give it a shot. And I know that it's, I know that everybody gets scared at a three hour runtime. If you can watch a bunch of, CGI superheroes beat the hell out of each other for three hours. You can see something that truly needs to be retaught or relearned in this in this country because I don't think people know the full story of this. I think that this is this is his best work since The Dark Knight. It might be his second best film outside the prestige. Um Time's going to be tough. I'm going to see this movie like at least two or three more times in theaters because I think that like Barbie, you're not going to get an experience like this for, for a while. Yeah. And I think you have to see it, see them both a couple of times to catch things in the periphery that you, you know, I was just thinking about the shot with um, in the, the first interrogation where you see Kitty sitting behind I was concentrating on her so much yeah. that I wasn't thinking about him. I mean, there's all these subtleties that they're doing there, which means so much in, later in the story. I will say one last thing is that 
if this is what we get because Warner Brothers pisses him off <laughs> and he goes to Universal and with the less money than he did the film, previous film before um, and has like piss a chip on and have a studio. chip on his shoulder, please piss him off more yeah. because like, <laughs> because that's, then we all benefit from that great cinema. All right, let's move on to Gerwig's Barbie, which she co-wrote with her partner, uh, Noah Baumbach. For me, she pulled it off. She, after this massive PR explosion running up to this, she managed to really tow the commercial line that she had to do um, with this big movie financed by Mattel. At the same time, put a spotlight on the cultural implications and problems of Barbie. Feminism, patriarchy, she brought in the history of the doll with the creator, Ruth. It's crazy. It's camp. It has its problems that we will get to. But in in the big picture, for me, she pulled it off. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you felt the reactions of the critics were. To me, I felt there was more particularly men who mm. were not liking this. Well, I think it's uh, it's the also the dark side of this Barbenheimer conversation. I mean, shoot, we we jokingly talked about it when we did our summer movie draft, um, but it's something that I kind of because we can't just have nice things anymore. We always have to make everything a goddamn competition and it really just and and then it turns into a very sexist competition like only girls are gonna like barbie and only guys are gonna like oppenheimer and that's bullshit because i know people that are both men women non-binary gay straight you know all different you know ethnicities that have liked and both the films phenomenon has really shown i mean that the groups have come together and they're I mean, seeing the, each other's pictures. <laughs> the the casts have come together. The filmmakers have mostly come together. You should. You even got Tom Cruise saying he's going to go see the darn thing because well, Tom both Cruise just films. wants everyone to go. To the he wants movies. everyone to go see a film, but he won't go and stand out on a picket line or anything. But you know that's a different story for another time. But I I think that uh, I think personally I, I I think that these these critics. I mean, one some of them it is their own opinions. They, I think you just you have to. Say that if if they didn't like the film on its own merit, I understand. Oh, of course. It, it, the conversation that needs to be why is there so many damn male critics out there that are one covering this film if their female colleagues were not offered the opportunity to do so, or if there aren't any fe enough female writers on their staffs. I know that I wrote the op <laughs> in the most, of course, sex. I guess you could say like stereotypical faction. Uh, you know, I, I wrote the Oppenheimer review, and Sophia Simonello wrote the the Barbie review over at Awards Watch. But yet, we talked through the process of writing both of those. We had conversations, both on text and phone calls, about those films to really hash out and and make sure that those reviews uh, reflected the films that we that we saw, and those are. They were wonderful conversations, but I don't think that people, I think when you have embargoes that are like, you got to quickly turn around everything. I think that in the instant reaction, Twitter, you know, thread, you know, it's not helping at all. And I think that, you know, I think that you can, you can go into a movie if you don't like it or not, but it goes both ways. If you don't like it, 
don't have an agenda behind it. But if somebody also does say that they don't like this movie, don't don't go into their DMs or into their Twitter replies and attack them for saying something that they truly believe. Now, some people are just insufferable to begin with and <laughs> that we cover in this profession or our colleagues of ours at other sites. And they and they just you just know what kind of movies they're going to like and what they and what they don't. But I personally, I was looking forward to both of these films. I'm a massive Greta Gerwig fan. I thought that Lady Bird was was a masterpiece and that Little Women made me cry when I saw it in theaters. And then I saw it like, I think last week or two weeks ago at home. And I was crying even more than that, that go around. So she's, she's a director that has like a pulse into my, into my soul right now. And most people's too. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I think that what's been great about Greta Gerwig's career of late is she's been able to pull in both male and female audiences together. She has a real universality around her. That's why when she's gone out in the press and said, I'm trying to make movies like my weekend buddy, Mr. Christopher Nolan, it makes total sense that her next big project is this wild, ambitious, candy-coated dreamscape that is Barbie, you know? It's been a really interesting to see the reactions and that they've mostly, the whole fandom we hate that movie we have to love that movie then we have to hate that movie and you know vitriol i haven't seen that as much and the critics who have liked or disliked have have done so um with interesting perspectives on both movies but particularly this one yeah i i think also it's and this is maybe unfair to both of the films but i think that comedy is much more i think subject it's very much more subjective than than drama so and and it's very hard to make everyone laugh i think you're able to kind of like make a dramatic story and everybody can watch that but it really is hard to make everybody laugh at a joke that's why i think some of the best actors are com- are great comedians because if you're able to make somebody laugh you can make somebody you cry make cry yeah. yeah and i think that that's Did you laugh Barbie, did you like? It? I, I really liked it. I, um, I, I need to see it again because I think, for most comedies nowadays, they a lot of jokes fly by so quick, and this movie flies by so quick, um, that I, I did feel like I missed them. Also, you know, I had to like drive two hours to see it, and it was a big, it was a big production just to go see the film. I have to say though, the the one thing that as it's lingered and I thought about it in, in anticipation to see it again, it's so ambitious. It is such an ambitious film from a director that is given a blank check to create a movie based off a an existing property, but not a film existing property. Uh, it reminds me a lot of like when Pirates of the Caribbean was created. How are you going to make a movie entertaining enough about a theme park ride? And then, of course, there's like the Lego movie. How are you going to make a a movie about these little things, you know, these little toys work? And she does it with, you know, with flying colors. She's an incredible writer and director. You can tell early on the, the influences of this movie. Like, you know, I, I mean, Singing in the Rain and Jacques Demy, but then something even as crazy as you know truman show wizard of oz even like you could feel like eric anderson was saying um he was he was saying austin powers in a a way and 
and the goofiness of those films. And I just, I, I found it to be so much fun. What I wasn't expecting was this massive commentary on the patriarchy in this film that I thought, while very on the nose, was handled much better than a lot of men do when they try to talk about this stuff, mm. because there's also a lot of sincerity throughout the rest of the storyline and throughout a lot of the rest of the character and a lot of truth also mixed with within all these, these ideas are these dazzling dance numbers and choreography and music and these wonderful performances for Margot Robbie who might have just delivered her best performance to date and was kind of, I was kind of shocked how existential her Barbie was going to be because she plays quote unquote stereotypical Barbie, but she really becomes existential Barbie by the end of the film. I think Ryan Gosling, who I've always known to be a comedic genius because I've seen him on late night shows and whatnot, but also I've seen uh, the nice guys. And he's incredible in that movie. So it was not surprising for me at all for him to be great here. I mean, you have like Issa Rae and American Ferreira and Michael Sarah as Alan and oh, um, Kate McKinnon. You know, there there was a and there was a lot of great here. There are a couple of things that I think the film um, that struggles from it to being a one hundred percent like great movie. I think that the 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 pacing because it's so ambitious and doing so many things. I don't think it's as tight as Little Women or Lady Bird um structurally. Especially the third, the last act. Yeah, the last act. There's a out. lot going on and I I can I can get over that because of the ambition and some of those sequences are just like I'm not going to get rid of them because they're too good. I felt the second act was much stronger than the first act, but a lot of the first act is the materials that they've shown us. So I do also appreciate the fact that like we didn't see the end of this movie in any of the promotional materials. I do think though, that the Will Ferrell stuff, which is like, I think 15 minutes of this movie could get completely cut out. It was, it's, it's not that I think the character is poorly written. It's that I think I'm, I would rather have seen a different actor play that character because will ferrell it just felt very graining and it also feels like that stuff that meta contextuality that's already there without those characters yeah, is there's a, there's a few digs she does at mattel which is not the will ferrell part which i mm -hmm. thought were pretty strong when the daughter for example tells barbie you ruined the lives mm -hmm. of the you ruined feminism you ruined feminism for all <laughs> girls <laughs> This is some of the lines in the boardroom was like, yes, we've had two women here in the board and sometime in 1980. Um, <laughs> and, the, and I'm sure there was one before. <laughs> I think the boardroom scene is great enough. But then when you have them start chasing after them and yeah. doing all that stuff, and it feels like if you take them out of the movie, you can kind of just wrap everything up, you know, neatly. And then I don't know, American Ferreira could kind of just come back and, and told them what happened. And I think it would have just been fine. You know what I mean? That An America way. Ferrera speech. Oh my oh. God. I don't, that was, I need to watch it again. So I can, so I can hear it all again, because it, it was, yeah. I mean, talk about just moving the camera. 
um, rights into her perspective. I felt though, like the, the connection between her and Barbie by the end could have been more solidified because she does then seem like she becomes like everyone's connection when the, obviously the film starts off with them having this connection because Ferreira and her, and her daughter in the film are having this, this riff and, and she's becoming sort of depressed. And then there's also, you know, that she wants to, it seems like also create Barbies and, and things of that nature. So I felt like a little bit of her thread in the film was a little loose and, and again, it could have been a little tighter to to really hit home those those connective tissues once her daughter and her do have this like coming together moment. Um, but um, but I mean, you know, the, from the get go, like Lizzo's two opening songs made me laugh harder than a lot of movies. This year. Yeah, I'm still. <laughs> oh, are you OK? Like when she <laughs> falls off the roof, it was oh, my God, I was like, OK, this movie knows what it's like about the justice league joke that's just thrown in here which is I mean, so funny things that i recognized as a teen i used to sit there and listen to guys play their stupid guitars and and that was sort of my job to just say that sounded great is that <laughs> and, not like the scene of the year wasn't well, it just like i mean the idea of of gosling and this patriarchy and the 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 fact that come you know in in barbie land women are in control and they're believed to have solved sexism <laughs> like it's say it's stated at the beginning of the film through helen mirren's incredible narrations oh, throughout the entire film that you know like you know sexism and racism and all that none of that exists in barbie land like we fixed that you know and um and then when ken and barbie go to the real world in a really like hilarious and also really cool production design sort of montage and gosling's just incredible with like his with like his non um speaking sort of you know just antics like when he's in the boat and he sees the the whale come out or he's you know he's hanging on to the back of the rocket if they're going in the space montage like it's oh my god just because his physical comedy is incredible but no then he learns that men are in control learns about the patriarchy just hide it better <laughs> yeah and it's all about like fur coats, Rocky and horses. Yeah. And it's, and it's so, it's so goddamn funny. I mean, I, I was sitting there. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, we really just kind of like diluted down to the three most like quote unquote masculine things that you can find, which is like over the top clothing and uh, like a broken sports hero. And then like, uh, you know, like a horse riding in a commercial or something like that. And him taking the books and like, I'm going to go back to Barbie land and teach everybody what I know. And then them coming back just like volleyball and, and beers. That's like the only thing. And um, I mean, his, his whole, I think that the, the, the joke besides the, the guitar joke, that's great is the, when they're trying to snap the Barbies out of, out of the trance. And um, it's the, it's when Issa Rae goes up to Kinsley Benadir and says, I've never seen the Godfather. Yes, and, no, and can you, can, can you start again and talk all through it? Yeah. He's, and when he, and when he's like, this movie literally is the pinnacle of 1970s cinema. I felt every critic in there felt seen in that screening. <laughs> if you've ever loved film, you felt seen It's particularly if you're a man, you're like, Holy shit. I do this all the time. And it's that kind of, it's, it's those things in there that I know it's not a studio project. It's Greta Gerwig. It's the, 
it's the slap across the face at Warner Brothers for the Snyder cut of, you know, like, I'm thank God I'd never have to watch or hear about the exactly you know, Snyder. Zack Snyder's Justice League ever again. Like, it's, you know, the stuff like that. But then, of course, like and Margot Robbie is saying that she, she's ugly and Helen Mirren suddenly comes <laughs> in. And says, Margot Robbie's definitely not the right casting for this line. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like things like that where you're like, it's really sincere and and everything and you're like and then that joke comes in there and you're just like oh my god that's right noah bombach and 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 greta gerwig made this movie because there they are you know you know and i felt like watching it it was they were they were both making white noise in this movie at the same time in the household and you can clearly feel it the influences on both of them the existential dread you know, I mean, like American a death. popular culture and what exactly. it's done. And, I mean, all that sort of influence. But I read someone say that they felt that this film was too self-aware. And that's what I think is great about it. I mean, that there are those things that you were just saying are are there and continuously coming. And I want to see it again to see what I missed. Like Emerald Fennell as the pregnant Barbie. Mitch. <laughs> Mitch every every time they like, brought... I swear to God, the one the one part that did make me laugh the most with Will Ferrell was when he comes out of the the dream house and he sees Midge. He goes, ah, and he's <laughs> like, I thought we discontinued you. And it was the funniest laugh of Will Ferrell stuff I had because it was so unexpected and it felt it kind of felt improvised, to be honest with you. And uh, it was so good. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, it, it, it a movie like this. How did you not think it was going to be a self-aware comedy? I know. And why it's so good. But knowing her sense of comedy and style, Mm -hmm. like in, in not just, I mean, it's not really in, in her films a lot, but I mean, it's very, it's very much in the, in the, the zone of, of the kind of comedies that her and Noah seem to really gravitate towards or produce or whatever. And, um, you know, felt clueless clueless fives at times too like it's got it's that's the thing about barbie is the more and more i you know you know oppenheimer's about all the epics that we love barbie is about all the you know about all the like hollywood you know cinema classic comedies that we love too there's so and musicals and there's so many film influences on the film as you're watching it it's these actually this, this Barbenheimer experiment might be good for somebody that wants to get into cinema because you're getting all kinds of tastes back and forth because you're getting these absurdist comedies. You're getting these, these, this wonderful message film. And then you're also getting these musical sequences, like the Barbie dream house dance number. I was like, if you know, and have seen Ryan Gosling do the Mickey mouse, you know, club crap dance stuff that he did. And you loved him in La La Land. You're going to absolutely lose your mind because it's dancing that's perfectly choreographed, but it's also extremely hilarious. And I mean, the I'm just Ken sequence. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what a showstopper. If he's not on the Oscar stage doing that, oh God, doing yes. that, what the hell did we do this whole thing for? Because like, it's so hilarious cancel barbenheimer if he's not doing this on <laughs> cancel stage. the oscars yes we, it has <laughs> to be, could in be there. a risk anyway considering <laughs> the strikes so true <laughs> careful what you does, wish for. does hollywood really need to celebrate this year look what they've done um but they're definitely not going to celebrate it 
uh, you were saying this now and, and how we started talking about this. Um, there is this sort of thing that, oh, Greta Gerwig and, and she's just sell out for doing this. Oh. Well, Noah did Madagascar too to pay for his divorce or something that I read. I mean, it's sexist. Let's just call it what it is. Yeah. I feel very provoked. <laughs> well, I was, I saw that article. I, I did not read the article because the headline said enough about the quite frankly Indeed. bullshit the bullshit that was being uh, spewed there um yeah i i think that that's that's horrible um and uh one they should retract a, an apology uh, to be fair because of the fact that that's not an opinion at that point that's a that's a, a, a that's hate speech really and also it's you're being an unaware journalist for like you're saying he's done everyone does patch jobs or or does jobs to pay the bills but it's how you do it. Like, you know, if people, people are so freaking precious about director's filmographies at this point. And why wouldn't the Gerwig be able to get a massive paycheck and IP and do Transformers, Lego movie, Barbie, <laughs> um, and do it this well with social commentary and everything that we want in it? Well, also my, well, also the thing is too, is, She's a female director that got handed a $140 million check for the studio to make a, a movie. And she got to do it really when the final product on her own terms for the most part. Why the hell wouldn't you want to do that? Movies of could course. make all of its budget domestically back this weekend. So it's clearly a hit. Doesn't matter if Mattel's bigger plans are to create a, a cinematic, you know, legacy or about all their toys or whatnot. That's she's not going to be involved in any of that. And who knows who should be involved in a sequel to this, but like she gets to make her own, every director gets to make their own filmography. I mean, for God's sake, we just talked about Christopher Nolan. A lot of people would consider him the premier auteur, uh, large format filmmaker of our time. He made three Batman movies. There's a way you do it and a way you don't do it. And I think it, you know, honestly, it, it might just be the studio. Warner Brothers is a studio that even though they are in very deep water with a lot of people right now, they have always been known as the studio that lets their directors create and work and and they are a champion of the director. They always have been. That's why like Clint Eastwood was on their payroll for so many years. Bradley Cooper was on, you know, they gave Bradley Cooper his first chance. They've they've done it with Nolan before. Um Denis Villeneuve seems to be their their new one. I mean, because you know, because Dune is a massive undertaking to for any studio to greenlight. And so, yeah, to call her a sellout is is below the bar. It's mm -hmm. below, below the bar. And if you think that, then one, you watched a completely different film than I did. But two, also, your opinion to me doesn't really isn't really valid. I mean, the same studio just did The Flash. Mm -hmm. If that's not selling out i don't know what is you know what i mean like like that movie's garbage in comparison to this and this has a vision you see everyone talking to her uh talking about her all the cast and everything when they were doing all their interviews pre uh the strike everyone was talking about how meticulous how smart she is how inventive she is you see it all on the screen it's a 140 million dollar film and it feels like it's all there for a, for a big it's also, I, I, I want to say, I think that, and this is absolutely true. It's a big budget studio comedy. That's what this is. This isn't like a, this isn't an action adventure movie. This is, when do we get to see a 
even though it's based off a of property, a comedy like this get the budget it anymore. does. And she's Lady Bird made money. Little Women made a ton of money. Why is and this is going to make a ton of money? Why isn't she able to craft herself to be on that pedestal? Because I know this about Christopher Nolan and all and and directors like him. He doesn't want to be the only person like that because how boring you know what i mean and she is about to enter if she hasn't already she definitely is on her third feature here the same level that her that her um it's really funny like the the directors of that 2017 lineup really all kind of now crossed together as being i think the the futures of cinema you have guillermo del toro who's you know working with animation and trying to save that and everything you have paul thomas anderson who's going the indie route but he has his own films and he's he's even starting to think about working with bigger people because i think he's gonna work with like leo and and joaquin phoenix you have nolan jordan peele and then, who is is i think just on their level and then greta like those are those are i think the five modern filmmakers that i i think that audiences can definitely trust the most but and she's She's getting opportunities now that's going to open up so many doors for other female directors. That's that's what this is. This these are two success stories this weekend. We should not lose that sight, even and if even if it is from Mattel. What I said at the beginning, she pulled this off. Off. I yeah. mean, this was a difficult thing to go into. Make a big ass studio comedy based on this existing material and do it with intelligence and subversity and i can't believe how over my expectation she did this oh yeah no i mean she it's not my favorite of her films um nothing for me beats ladybird so no no nothing and and it didn't it didn't get me and i don't think it got me as emotional uh, as 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 late as Lady Bird or as as Little Women, Little Women, there are there are little moments in that movie, like Chris Cooper on the stairs that just break my heart every time I think about it. Um, I don't want to think about it right now, but um, but no, I think that it's definitely of her films though, probably the one I want to rewatch the most. It's definitely the most rewatchable of her films, and I think with more rewatches, you'll be able to to find all the little things because with comedies, you know, I was, I was talking at a film festival with um, the director of bottoms that's coming out later this year and Emma Segelman. And she was talking about in comedies, you're able to just hide things more in the backdrop or in, in, the, in every scene. So then when the audience sees a film again, they find those Easter eggs and then that, and then they're finding new stuff each and every time. And that's what makes a great comedy. I think Greta's done that here. She's made a a great comedy, a good social sat, you know, a good social kind of satire, and your you know anti anti patriarchy, pro feminist very film. And I think that that's okay for her to make that. Also, too, if it's not a perfect film, that's okay. Like, not every damn movie needs to be perfect from these from these directors either. And that's the thing too that's so crazy, Christina. Back to your like original question, it's like. I kind of think that it's best to have these opinions come from the middle and have these non five star or two star films like these to have people that are in the three and a halfs and the four and to hear why they're like that. Those are just, those are very interesting. 
rather than just the because you know some people are like straight in the bag for either one of these two films and you know there's going to be people that are against these films from even the time they were greenlit so it's 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 about having a productive conversation dialogue but i mean i mean anytime somebody does that matchbox 20 sequence that she does and it's not even just the (laughs) guitar strumming it's the then I don't think, you know, you talk about faces in Oppenheimer. Yeah. <laughs> there is a shot in Barbie. It's Kingsley Benadir's face. He's sitting behind a drum set on the beach and his Barbie leaves to go the other. You would have felt He's like so you good. shot his dog doing that. It's so funny. I, I was I was like the 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 level of just like like facial expressions, uh, like Ryan Gosling's facial expressions or. Uh, you know, <laughs> just the his aggravation at everything is incredible work. It's it's such a it, it's a more a movie. The more I think about it, the funnier it is. And uh, but I have to say, rounding things up, one of the funnest things about the Barbenheimer phenomenon during this period that we're in with strikes when the writers and the actors are really struggling for their existence in every way, this enthusiasm for these two movies and the enthusiasm to head to the movies, um, to buy your tickets and to discuss these and to talk about them. It's what makes me most happy. Yeah. I mean, it is very rare that because of streaming because of music, because of just the culture, the way it is, that film is front and center. The anticipation is built up to this. You have hundreds of thousands of people that are seeing these movies, millions of dollars being made. I was looking at it. They're projecting 160 for Barbie. They're projecting 60 to 70 for Oppenheimer. Mission Impossible will make another 20 something million. Uh, the conspiracy theory movie will make another 20 million because you know the bots for them bought the tickets and then like indiana jones could make 10 million that's a lot of diversity in the marketplace and i think it's great with these record heat waves that are going on especially you know across the world but definitely here in my neck of the woods people are clamoring into the theaters you're seeing every type of screenings for these movies being sold out it does in a moment in which our industry feels very hopeless at the idea of reaching a deal to get its lights back on, we see it thriving the most with essentially two original ideas from two of our premier filmmakers with massive cast. As you were saying, they're both good, too. And they're both good movies. If if you're a young kid (laughs) who's just drawn in from the enthusiasm of doing a double feature, you're actually seeing two really good movies. It's not like it's not like other weekends when you get two movies and you're like, well, that's a dud and the other one's fine. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like Transformers and The Flash came out in the same weekend. You know what I mean? And that's kind of the good thing is like, it just reminds me of 15 years ago. 15 years ago, we were doing the exact same thing. Dark Knight, Mamma Mia came out. And I remember seeing it was so crazy the night the anniversary of the dark night 15 years ago i was watching oppenheimer 15 years later in on the big screen and 
I saw Mamma Mia in theaters and I, and it was packed and people were dancing and it was fun. And that's what Barbie has been. It's been pink and dancing and fun and everyone's having a good time. I think that anyone that tries to, you know, be a cynic um, about the experience of going right now to the theater and seeing one over the other, I've said from the beginning, it is not about Barbie versus Oppenheimer. It is about Barbie and Oppenheimer. These both these movies need to succeed because we need every movie like these to succeed because if movies like that are directed by Christopher Nolan and Greta Gerwig can't do well commercially and critically at the at, you know at on a whole, it's a it's then very bleak for the future of cinema. So the fact that these are now like the epicenter of culture for the next probably two weeks, it may be longer. It's great. It's great. I hope and, they make a billion like- dollars each. But it looks like yeah. they will, or at least be close. On that note of positivity, Ryan, it's not always we end in positivity. Um, thank you so much. I want to send all the listeners to awardswatch.com to read your review of Oppenheimer, which is really excellent, as well as Sophia's of Barbie. Um, and thank you so much for being here. Again. Oh, thank you for, for having me. I always love coming on. I kind of figured we were going to talk about this. I feel like we'll talk about some other big movies that are coming out if they come out um and i know that we're getting closer i will be i will be with you in person in the mountains of telluride and there will be movies i know that there will be uh and uh, but i'm i'm so grateful to to come on and um and yes everybody out there go see these movies again you've already heard the spoilers but you should go see them again (laughs) see them as many times as you can don't go see uh dial of destiny go see these two movies these these feel like really labors of love and um so yeah thank you so much for having me on thank you history is complicated the story of human progress is long messy and riddled with controversies big and small on conflicted we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures we try and untangle the good from the bad the fact from the fiction and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.